Hi everyone, it's Lauren and Nora. We just wanted to pop in real quick to give a little update. As we were editing this episode, we realized that the sound quality on my mic, this is Nora, was off. So we just wanted to apologize and say we have fixed the issue going forward. We're still new at this and figuring things out, but we hope you still love us and a scary state. So enjoy! You are listening to A Scary State. A podcast where every week we talk about all things scary in your state. From killers, to haunted locations, cryptids, to urban legends, and everything scary in between. We're two friends who share a passion for haunted stories and true crime. And you never know what scary secrets your state holds. So Lauren. Yes, Nora. Let's get scary. Hello. Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren. And I'm Nora. And this is A Scary State. Welcome back. So this is our first episode since we have gone live. And we just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts to everyone who has listened to our first two episodes. Thank you so much. Yes, we have gotten so much positive feedback and encouragement, which is so motivating because we worked on this podcast for like a month before we went live. And putting yourself out there is nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. Um, But also really cool. And we put so much effort and so much work into this. So it's really nice to have people tell us that they're noticing that, that Mm -hmm. they're appreciating that, which we appreciate. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing going into this. We just did a bunch of research and prayed for the best. Um, But yeah, we're just really excited to finally be live. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. So thank you all. All right. So today we are going to be talking about Ohio. So Ohio is nicknamed the Buckeye State and joined the Union on March 1st, 1803 and became the 17th state in the Union. Um, Ohio got its name from the Iroquois, Iroquois, is that the right thing? Word meaning Great River, which was O-Y-O. So interesting laws are that it's legal to get a fish drunk. In Toledo, it is illegal to throw a snake at someone. And unless you have a license, it is illegal to kill a housefly within 160 feet of a church. And if your dog is being loud in Paulding, a policeman may bite them in order to keep them quiet. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In Waynesville Village, located in Warren County within the Wayne Township, it is said to be home to more than 30 haunted places. There are 25 ghost towns in Ohio, from Boston Mills to Newville and all the ones in between. And at least 18 scary movies have taken place in Ohio. So some examples are Portions of Silence of the Lambs, which I love, The Nightmare on Elm Street, The Watch, Take Shelter, and many, many others. In Ohio, there have been eight identified serial killers and three unidentified serial killers. And from that research we have from Radford University and Florida Gulf Coast University, Ohio is in the top six states with the largest number of serial killer victims, with 433. Jeez. Mm-hmm. I just, I would not expect Ohio, when you said the statistic about all the haunting hauntings and haunted places, I would not think of Ohio for that. No, I not mean, at Oregon, all. Oregon, yes. Massachusetts, yes, because of Salem. Oh, yeah. But Ohio, like a little Midwest, you just think of like nice, friendly yeah. people and, you know, re- a little religious. Little quaint town. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's really interesting. Oh, yeah, no, home to a lot of haunted things. Yeah. All right, Nora, what are you talking about today? So today I am talking about the Franklin Castle. Oh. It's considered the most haunted place in Ohio. Okay. Um, It's a Victorian stone house located in Cleveland, and it was built in the American Queen Anne style. 
So Queen Anne style was really big in the late 19th and early 20th century. And the style basically looks like a castle. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a mini castle when it's built as a house. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's it, it's it's pretty, but it's also really creepy looking. <laughs> basically, the Franklin Castle, it's not a castle. It's just a mansion. Oh. That looks like one. Oh. But, you know, castle sounds cooler, so I'm sure they wanted to play that up. Oh, definitely. And side note, um, Cleveland is a few hours from Pittsburgh, and I lived in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. for a few years. And there's a neighborhood in Pittsburgh called Shadyside. The Queen Anne style is, like, all over Shadyside. See, I love that kind of style of houses. I do, too. But it's interesting because, like, the the houses in Shadyside that are Queen Anne style, they look like normal houses on the outside, but they've been broken up into, like, apartments inside. Oh! Yeah. Is that, like, one of the ones you lived in? So, I didn't, but, like, all over that neighborhood, they had them. We actually looked at places that were like that. Oh, cool. Um, we didn't end up doing it. I mean, those houses are older. Yeah. So, you know, no AC and oh. a diva with that, so I have to have AC. No, where we went to college, there's a group of dorms, and they're, like, the older dorms on the campus, and that's where I lived. And so the first day that we were allowed to use our blankets was the most exciting thing because we didn't have AC. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. So you get ready, you get out of the shower, and you're already sweating because it's so hot. Yeah. So, and yeah. it's like you need to take another shower an yes. hour after you showered. Yes. So, I yeah, AC. It builds character. <laughs> eh, no. <laughs> During the time that the Franklin Castle was built, Franklin Boulevard, where the house was located, was one of the most prestigious residential avenues in Cleveland. Okay. And now the house is considered, like I said, the most haunted house in Ohio. In Ohio. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The house has four stories and more than 20 rooms and 80 windows. Oh my gosh. When I was writing this, I put such a dumb dad joke. I was like, that's a lot of Windex. (laughs) There wasn't Windex when this house was built, so I don't know why I put that. (laughs) Oh, Nora. Moving right along. Aniston, Alabama. I I can't help it. I think I'm just going to have a dad joke in every episode. No, see, I appreciate that, though. People might hate it, but (laughs) that's just who I am. Because see, it'll entertain us, so. (laughs) So the house took two years to be built. It was built from 1881 to 1883 by the famed architectural firm called Kudal and Richardson. And the house was built for a man named Hans Tiedemann, who was a prestigious German immigrant. Okay. Hans is the one who named the castle Franklin Castle after the street name that the home was located on. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Hans's career because it's actually really impressive. Okay. Um, so Hans worked as an apprentice to a barrel maker in Ohio. That was his first job when he immigrated here. I wonder uh, why barrels Germany. had such a need. You know, it's just the times, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All the alcohol in the barrels. Exactly. So he moved to Cleveland around 1855 and worked as a clerk at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Then he became a wholesale grocer and sold his shares in the grocery business and, and founded a bank called Union Banking and Savings Company. He became the vice president of the bank. So he literally started from bagging groceries to founding a bank. Started from the bottom. <laughs> literally. And that's like... The American dream. But things didn't stay like that forever for poor Hans. And they wouldn't. I know. Because why would they? So Hans and his family moved into the Franklin Castle and lived happily ever after. Oh, all right. End of episode. Thanks, guys. We're done here. (laughs) Not. I wish that were the ending, but tragically on January 15th, 1891, (laughs) Hans's 15-year-old daughter, Emma, passed away from diabetes. Shortly after, Hans's elderly mother, Wiebeka, 
W-I-E-B-E-K-A, Wiebeka, passed away as well. Over the following three years, Hans's three remaining children died while they were still infants. And what year is this? This is in the late 1890s. Okay. Slash, like, very early 1900s. Dang. The children's names were Wilhelmine, Ernst, and Albert. One source said that he had a fifth child named Dora, who actually lived to be an adult, but I couldn't find any information on her. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that was true. Because everything else I read said that, unfortunately, all his kids passed away. This is where the rumored beginning of all the hauntings started, Mm -hmm. was all of these deaths in such close proximity to each other in this house. I mean, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And whether you think the house is haunted or not, in my opinion, it's definitely cursed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or is it just being occupied by an evil person? I don't know. What are you going to tell me, Nora? Well, people began believing that there was more going on there. With almost the entire family dying in this house within such a short period of time, dark rumors began circling around Hans, but most of these rumors didn't have any merit. Yeah. Um, People in the community said that Hans was a generous man who gave to charities and was not a monster. But there's no, I mean, there's no proof that he wasn't a monster. And I mean, even back then too, like the healthcare and everything was horrible. So like people did not make it very long anyways. So I can see why, you know, people aren't sure. Because yes, health is bad. So people don't live very long, but also at the same time, that many people in that short amount of a time, like Mm -hmm. it's just suspicious. And then you think about like, Kids dying in infancy was very common. I think yeah. that's why people had so many kids, because the kids had a sh- smaller chance of surviving. Yeah, no, I read that before. Yeah, so, I mean, it does make sense. I don't think there were very many vaccines yet at that point. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> know if there were any vaccines. Yeah, um, so I, I get it, but it still is weird that it happened in such a short amount of time yeah. with each other. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the whole family was upset about the loss of so many of his family members, especially Hans's wife, Louisa. Oh, I know. So, to, to distract his wife, Hans began extensive construction on the home and added a ballroom, which runs the length of the house on the fourth floor. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's massive. Also, during the construction, turrets, the, like, pointy part of castles, oh, uh-huh. and gargoyles oh. were added to the facade. And Ooh. it gave the house an even more pronounced castle appearance. There's this house in um, Virginia, like, if you go down Route 15 or 50, one of those, and it's, like, a castle house. Like, it has the castle, like, view. It has the gargoyles. It's really cool. Oh, have you driven by it before? No, but I want to. I'll now. have to. It's literally, like, 20 minutes from here. Okay, cool. Yeah. I love how we add a new trip in every episode. <laughs> I know. We need to, like, start taking notes on what we're going to do. Oh, the ultimate road trip. I know. So there were also apparently hidden rooms and secret passageways that were added to the home during the construction. That is so cool. I agree. I would love a secret passageway. Oh, yeah. Me too. Um, There's a theory, though, that the rooms and passages he added were designed so that Hans could commit heinous crimes. Okay, not so cool anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Including murdering his niece. Oh. Murdering a servant who worked there. Oh, my God. And murdering his own wife, <gasps> Emma. What about Louise? Um, she's the... Or, sorry, his own daughter, Emma. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I literally read the word daughter and said wife. I don't know why. His own daughter, Emma. Oh, my God. And these passageways helped it so that he wouldn't be detected mm-hmm. when he committed these crimes. 
And there's still others who firmly believe that Mrs. Tiedman herself had the passages created so that she could sneak past her overbearing husband undetected. Oh, how sad. I know. That is very sad. That's but scary. I, mean, I don't know about that theory because he would obviously know about the passages. Yeah. Like it would be really hard to have those built without him ever knowing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know about that, but that is another theory. Sadly, Hans's wife, Louisa, died from liver disease on March 24th, 1895. Oh, She was only 57, which I guess was probably pretty old at that time. Yeah. But yeah. Still feels so young now. Hans got remarried to a lady named Henrietta after Louisa died, and their marriage sparked rumors regarding Louisa's cause of death. Mm. And Lauren, we have listened to enough true kind of crime <laughs> podcasts to know it's always that, a husband, and people are capable <laughs> of doing insane things if they want to get out of a marriage or like leave their uh-huh. family. Was di- okay. This might be a stupid question. Was divorce a thing back then, or was it like this place was really religious, so divorce wasn't really allowed? Like, I don't know if divorce was a legal thing, but I have a feeling that. Not just saying just men, because we've definitely seen cases of women Mm -hmm. acting crazy. I think it was more common that the person would just leave the family. Yeah. That's where it came of, like, like you see, like, single moms with all these kids. Yeah. Not saying that Hans killed his wife, but it's definitely interesting that his entire family died in Mm -hmm. such a short amount of time. And then, bam, he's remarried. Yeah. We're talking, like, around a year later, he's remarried. So that's – and think about it. In those days – you met the person in person. Yeah. Or you wrote letters or something like that. It's not like you're texting all day. So yeah. It takes longer to cultivate a relationship with someone. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they got married so quickly, it's like, in my yeah. mind, it's the equivalent of, equivalent of like a few months. Yeah. Rather than a whole year. Yeah. So hopefully he didn't do anything to those kids or Louisa or his mom. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's very suspicious. It is. He was also accused of hanging his own mentally ill niece (gasps) in the house. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Is that the niece he was said to have killed that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Jeez. So that was the niece. And then the servant that I mentioned was rumored to be his mistress. (gasps) Oh. Yeah. And then he also had an illegitimate daughter that he apparently murdered as well. Emma? Yeah. Okay. Um, So he's literally just murdering people left and right if that's true Jeez. Um, it's hard to know for sure but we do know for certain that these people did die mm-hmm. we just you know Jeez, don't know the way yeah. yeah the next year hans sold his house to the Mulhauser family he was like get me out of this cursed house <laughs> by 1908 he died of a stroke and the entire Tiedman family was dead like i said did I he die in dead. the house or was he already out by then he was already moved out. Oh, okay and he had a lot of money. Mm-hmm. No one inherited any of it oh, because dude. there was no remaining family. So what happens in that case? Does it just, like, go to the state or the bank or something? I have a feeling it goes, yeah, to, like, the state hmm. um, or government. I don't know. I don't know. That's actually a really good question. Yeah. You'd think that there would be, like, some super, super distant relative who had to be alive somewhere who yeah. could inherit it. But who knows? Yeah. Huh. Rumors of crimes committed in the house by Tiedman, including sexual indiscretions and murder, have contributed to the Franklin Castle's reputation as a haunted house. I mean, not surprising. Not at all. Apparently, the curse of the castle didn't stick around during the Mulhauser's time owning and living in the castle. Or was it ever cursed? 
1913, the, quote, curse came back with a vengeance when Franklin Castle was sold to the German Socialist Party. Oh. <laughs> this would have been for, uh, 25 years before World War II started, but the castle began to officially only be used as a place for parties and meetings for the German Socialist Party. And then rumors quickly started to spread that the Germans were actually using the castle as a place to spy on Americans. Oh. It's even said that years later, a German shortwave radio would be found hidden up in the rafters. Oh my gosh, how cool. It is very cool. I mean, dark, but very cool. makes you mad, but also cool. From a historical point, very cool. (laughs) There's this book. Um, it's called All the Light We Cannot See, mm-hmm. and it's about World War II and, like, this kid who became – he had to fight for the Nazis, and he made radios. Mm. And it's a really good book. It's it, really it sad. Shows, it, it is sad, but it's so good. Okay. And it does have, like, a somewhat happy-ish Do you have it? Ian does. Can I borrow it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the infamous hidden passageways that Hans built in the castle were even rumored to have been used by an underground group of Nazis to machine gun a large group of people. Oh, my God. <gasps> yeah. And during Prohibition, a new tunnel was supposedly constructed that ran from either the basement of the castle or the carriage house all the way to Lake Erie. How far is that? Well, Lake Erie was about two hours north of like downtown pittsburgh oh so but the lake is like i think it's in part of ohio too okay so i don't know how far it is from cleveland i don't know my geography it's i don't think it's like super close okay dang that's still that would be a long tunnel yeah my gosh Mm -hmm. in the 1960s the germans were not occupying the house but various cultural organizations did and people started claiming that they there would be surging electricity, the sound of babies crying, and a mysterious woman in black sitting oh. in the house. Then in January of 1968, James Romano, his wife, and six children moved into the house. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. This poor family. Almost immediately after moving in, family members began experiencing strange things. I bet. Yeah. The Romano children would often speak of their newfound friend that they would put up in the fourth floor. Oh, God, chills. Oh, absolutely not. The children would also frequently ask their mother for extra cookies for their mysterious friends. This, I like keep getting like new waves of chills. I hate that. Can I, can I just comment and say that I would never, if, if I have children one day and they tell me they have an imaginary friend, I don't think that's cute. See, I want to be like, oh, how sweet. But, like, if it's this old house, like, uh, I I believe too much in, like, the paranormal and everything to be like, oh, that's a cute friend you're going to grow out of. Like, no. No. I think if there's something really talking to my child, we need to, like, (gasps) (laughs) we need to sage the whole house. Yeah. Like spread holy water everywhere just and I'm cleanse not everything just, yeah exactly mrs romano also began to feel the presence of mrs teedman who is hans's wife mm-hmm. who died in the home and also heard organ music coming from different areas of the home no i don't like that i don't either so the family was totally freaked out at this point yeah they contacted the now defunct ghost hunting group called the Northeast Ohio Physical Research Society oh. to investigate the castle. Oh, how cool. I know. And apparently one of the ghost hunters ran screaming from <gasps> Franklin Castle in, in the middle of the investigation. 
Oh my God. Shortly after the investigation, the Romanos turned to a Catholic priest for help Mm -hmm. who allegedly refused to bless the house because of what he felt when he stepped into the house. That's when you know, like, even if you're not (sighs) religious, if a priest came to my house and, like, wouldn't do anything, I'd be like, all right, you know what? It's, mm -mm, this isn't where we should be. I literally wrote in my notes, that's when you know. (laughs) (laughs) After enduring several more years of ghostly activity, the Romanos finally decided to sell the house. Literally, thank God. They put it up, like, they put up with that for years? Years. Of their children uh-uh. talking to these friends no. and all these weird sightings. No. That when the priest runs, when the priest won't bless the house, that's when you know you need to get out. Yeah. In 1974, Franklin Castle was sold to Sam Muscatello. Sam Muscatello planned to turn the castle into a church. Oh, yeah. Because I feel like that's going to go over really well. It, well, this man thought it would. Uh, and so he realized quickly that creating a church costs money, lots yes. of money. Mm-hmm. So to raise money for the church, he offered haunted house tours and overnight stays at the castle. Okay. That feels kind of counter, I don't know, like you know how some religions don't believe in like the afterlife, which is fine, like the on earth afterlife. Mm-hmm. Like they believe that there's like a higher power and that's where you go, whatever. So it just seems weird that to raise money for a church that may not have those beliefs, he's doing something with a haunted house. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then also you're going to turn it into a church. People are going to remember it was a haunted house. Mm-hmm. Like a haunted church sounds even worse than a haunted house. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, you don't want to mix the two. No. I feel like that alone is just like really bad. In 1975, shortly before Sam began, began giving the ghost tours and other activities at the castle... Human bones were found in a closet in the house. Oh, true skeletons in the closet. Yeah, but it is actually believed that the bones were planted there by Sam because he was looking to gain publicity for his ghost tours of the property and basically put the Franklin Castle on the map and make a bunch of money. Wow. Wow, that's shady. Yeah. And if he really did plant those human bones in the house for clout, I don't know. I think I used that. (laughs) That's so disturbing and such a desperate act because you're trying Mm -hmm. to raise money to start a church. That's not very godly to do. No, it's not. It's disrupting someone from peacefully laying. First of all, where did you even get those? Like, did you go in a graveyard or did you do something to someone? Well, because back, I mean, maybe not back then, but like in the time when like the Poltergeist movie was a thing, like during that time, Mm -hmm. using real skeletons was cheaper than using fake skeletons and fake bones. So in a lot of movies, they're using actual legit bones. Are you serious? Yeah. We're going to have to go over curses one day, but yeah. So they use like legit skeletons. That's why they believe that they believed that movie was so like cursed. But yeah. So I mean. Poltergeist? mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh I could be wrong, but I'm like 99% sure that's the movie. That is cool. But yeah, so I mean, it's not that far-fetched that these would be like actual legit people's bones. Wow. Mm-hmm. I just saw Poltergeist for the first time a few months ago, and that movie scared me a lot. I don't think I've ever seen it. So I used to hate scary movies, so I didn't see any of the classics back then. And mm-hmm. now I love scary movies, but no one will watch the classics with me because they've already seen them. Well... Yeah, I mean, I will definitely watch all of them with you because okay. I have a lot of, I just haven't watched a lot of movies in general, so I need to watch more. Okay. But Poltergeist is so interesting because the main, the little girl in the mm-hmm. movie, she's so cute. She's just a little blonde girl. She died mm-hmm. when she was like eight. It's and the, the Poltergeist curse. It's so 
so creepy. Yeah. It's so sad. Sad is the right word. It is sad. Because she was so young and pretty much, like, pressured. It seems, what from what I've read, pressured Mm -hmm. into, like, the whole acting world. And it's just, it's incredibly sad because she died mysteriously. Mm Mm-hmm. And the whole story of how she died, I don't know, it just seems really sketchy. Yeah. In early 1984, Michael DeVinco, who's Judy Garland's fifth and last husband, purchased Franklin Castle and almost immediately started making major renovations to the house. And renovations are always what brings out the ghosts. Oh, definitely. There's a lot of money that's been put into this house, and I feel like not a lot of great things came out of it. No, no. Over the next 10 years, Devinko spent close to $1 million renovating the castle, even going as far as to track down some of the original furnishings. And despite all of this, Devinko put the house up for sale in 1994. There have been a series of owners in the past 30 years. The castle was empty from 1994 until 1999. Michelle Heinberger bought the castle and carriage house for $350,000 mm. using part of her Yahoo stock. And she was um, one of the company's early employees. Of Yahoo? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So she had like a ton of stock being part of the company early. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, A native Clevelander, Heimberger, was fascinated with the home and purchased it with intentions of restoring the building to its former glory. Mm -hmm. But that same year, a fire badly damaged the castle. Because they messed with it. Exactly. This castle does not want to be touched. No. People go into this house and try to live a life or do all these things, and bad things happen. Yeah. Stay away from it. Though extensive repairs were done, the house restoration could not be completed. I mean, obviously. Mm -hmm. In 2004, there were rumors that Franklin Castle was going to be completely renovated and turned into the Franklin Cat and be turned into the Franklin Castle Club. Hmm. As of 2006, the entire club was proven to be a complete sham. Why? No repairs were ever made. The pictures on the website for this fake club were either close-up shots of individual architecture or pictures stolen from other websites. <gasps> oh. So someone went and created this whole fake proposal and so many Jeez. people believed it. No work had ever been done, no memberships ever sold, and there was also evidence that the castle had been used to shoot adult films. <gasps> oh. <sighs> Definitely cursed. Yeah. Around this time, though, the exterior stone of the building was cleaned, and the parapet on the left side of the facade was rebuilt. And by the way, um, the fire that burned down parts of the castle was found to be arson. (gasps) And I assume they never found out who did it? There there was nothing about that. Wow. Okay, Franklin (laughs) Franklin Castle was most recently purchased in 2011 for only $260,000. Wow. Like, I get that we grew up in the D.C. area, so our view of housing is, like, (laughs) so expensive compared to, like, other places, especially the Midwest. Yeah. But $260,000 for a legit castle? A castle. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I'm thinking, like, maybe people didn't want to buy it because it was known to be so haunted. I don't blame them at all. the value up or something. No, you're probably 100% right. I mean, and even the people doing ghost tours, like, things were happening Mm -hmm. to people and they were seeing things. Like, that's scary. I just thought it was interesting that you can, like, buy a $260,000 apartment here, like a two-bedroom in a sketchy area with no washer and dryer. (laughs) But if you go to Ohio, you can buy a castle. At least that one castle. Exactly. Because it could be down because, yeah, like you said, it just has this horrible past and just so sketchy. Yeah, exactly. 
So despite which rumors are true or false about the Franklin Castle, it's indisputable and sad how unfortunate events occurred in the house when all of the Hans's immediate family members died in the house. Jeez. That alone to me is spooky and haunted, and I just hope that Hans didn't kill his own family and that they really died from natural causes, mm-hmm. but we may never know. Well, we're going to have to at least not do a tour because that sounds really scary. I will never step foot in there. But, but we'll go look by. at it. We'll yeah, drive by it. Okay. By. <laughs> All right. I definitely feel safer driving by. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very cool. Yeah. What are you talking about today? All right. I am so excited about this. So what I am talking about today are the Circleville Letters also known as the Poison Pen Murder. So this all began in 1976 in Circleville, Ohio, which is just about 25 miles outside of Columbus. So Circleville is that kind of town where everyone knows everyone, you keep your doors unlocked, you fall asleep with your doors unlocked, like absolutely not. Small Midwestern town. But that's what this town is. So people started to receive letters that detailed their personal lives, and these letters had been sent out to thousands of residents. So the letters were threatening and sexual in nature. They included information that not many people knew about the recipient. All of the letters were written in a block letter handwriting, and they all had no return addresses, but were postmarked from Columbus, so 25 miles away. Someone's stirring up something. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of these letters were focused to Mary Gillespie. So in December of 1976 is when she received her first one. So Mary was a school bus driver, and the first letter she received in December 1976 stated that the writer had been observing her and her kids. They knew that she had kids, knew where she was living, and they stated that she was having an affair with the superintendent of schools, Gordon Massey. Was it true? Well, we don't know yet. So the letter said, quote, Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. And what's weird is I saw pictures of his letters and he uses colons instead of like periods. So instead of ending his sentences with like a period, it's a colon, which I thought was like a continuous thought. It's just very weird. That's super weird. So about a week after receiving this first letter stating her affair and that she had children, Mary received another similar letter. So she tried to keep these letters a secret from her husband, Ron, but then Ron received a letter. Um, His letter pretty much stated that his wife was having an affair and that he needed to report it to the Westfall School Board, which is who he was a superintendent of, Mm -hmm. and if he didn't stop it, his life would be in danger. The letter read, quote, We must inform you that your wife is having an affair with Mr. Massey. She has chased him until he caught her. Eliminate them both before they eliminate you. Remember, we know where you work, and we know your red and white truck. No one can help you. Think of your children and their future. Call the school board and report the truth after you finish your investigation. Notify the school board immediately. Again, your life is in danger. It's like, it's at first it sounds like they're trying to help him, mm-hmm. but then it threatens him. Yeah. And that's... And it listed like a couple times, your life is in danger, yeah. get them before they get you. So Ron, of course, asked Mary about the affair, and she, of course, denied the accusations. Mm-hmm. So two weeks later, another letter was received that said, quote, Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Admit the truth and inform the school board, end quote. The letter then went on and threatened to, quote, broadcast it on CVs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. So it's actually unclear which letter they received first. Some different sources said different things, but some said Ron's came first, some said Mary's came first, but overall they got these two letters. Yeah. Threatening letters. Threatening letters. 
So at this point, Mary and Ron decided to tell some family members about these letters, and they ended up telling Ron's sister Karen, Paul Freshour, who was Ron's sister's husband, and Paul's sister. So they noticed, too, that some of the letters were resi- they received were signed with a W. Well, Massey's son, the one who they believed to have the affair with, his name is William. So that could be why it was signed with a W yeah. for some of them. Mary also believed that the writer could be one of her co-workers, David Longberry. So David was very into Mary and was always trying to proposition her and trying to, like, go out with her. And she had denied him and rejected him multiple times. Because she's also married. So. And accept the rejection, dude. Right. Like, don't be crazy. Mm-hmm. So she believes that he was writing these letters out of frustration and, like, you know, trying to kind Ruin of her sully life. her name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Mary and Ron, so Mary and her husband, came up with a plan where they would tell the writer that they knew who he was. And Paul was asked to write a letter back to the writer claiming that he knew who he was. And Paul is Ron's sister's husband. But I don't know where they sent the letters because if there was no return address... I don't know. But so the plan seemed to work out, and Mary and Ron didn't receive any letters for weeks. So now we fast forward to August 19th of 1977, so about eight months later. Ron received a phone call from the letter writer that confirmed their suspicions of who wrote the letter. In that moment, Ron hung up the phone, grabbed his gun, which was a 25 caliber pistol, jumped into his pickup truck, and sped off, I assume, to the writer's location. Later that day, though, Ron's truck was found, crashed into a tree, and Ron was dead behind the wheel. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. He was so quick to get up and get out there. And and remember how it said his life was in danger? But his gun had apparently been fired once before the crash. They couldn't find the bullet. They couldn't find the casing. So that's very weird. Maybe they shot him and took the bullet. He was just dead gun. from the crash. Oh, from mm-hmm. the crash? Yeah. That's insane. Mm-hmm. So what is interesting, though, is Ron and Mary never admitted the alleged affair. And like I said, because they never confronted Massey about it, Ron's life was in danger and he died. So that's kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. The Pickaway County Sheriff, Dwight Radcliffe, was assigned to this case and ruled the crash an accident. He stated that Ron had been drunk, had a blood alcohol level of 0.16, which is double the legal limit, and had lost control of his truck. Well, this didn't sit right with his family because Ron's family claimed he wasn't a heavy drinker. There's no way he could have drank enough and been functional to have had that much because he wasn't a big drinker, so his tolerance wouldn't have been that high. So after the incident, a few residents in Circleville began receiving letters that stated there had been a cover-up involving Sheriff Ratliff's and Ron's murder. What? Mm-hmm. So according to Paul, Ratliff had originally claimed that the act was a result of foul play. So he said, quote, The sheriff agreed with me that there was foul play, and then when I contacted him again, he changed his attitude completely. End quote. So there had apparently been a person of interest who had been suspected of being involved in the crash somehow. He was questioned, polygraphed, and ultimately eliminated um, of having had any involvement, which is what made Ratcliffe change his mind that it had been an accident instead of foul play. So, like, but did he just make up the blood alcohol content thing? Because that's kind of indisputable. I don't know. Drinking. I don't know. Couldn't find anything about that. But that suspect, who they had originally believed and eliminated, was David Longberry, Mary's wow. co-worker. So about six years after the first letter had been received, Mary did end up confessing that an affair had begun between her and the superintendent in 1979, but that it hadn't been going on when the letters had initially been received in like 76, 77 time. Mm. You get accused of having an affair, then your husband dies, and then you have an affair. Like, it's just kind of, 
she's not, not, really, not a good look. Yeah, she doesn't yeah. have a great track record for telling the truth. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't I would take what she says with a grain of salt if yeah. I was anyone. Yeah. So between 1977 and 1983, Mary had received a total of 39 letters. Though combined, the residents of Circleville had received thousands and thousands of letters. Who has that much time? These are, and they're not like super short letters either. Like they take a little bit of time. I mean, I think there would have to be multiple people writing them. That's my thought. Maybe. There were a few threatening signs that started to pop up. So like I said, Mary was a bus driver. And one day she was driving along her bus route when she began to see threatening signs along the side of the road. Some of these signs were accusing Gordon Massey, the one she was having an affair with, Mm -hmm. of having indecent relations with Mary and Ron's 12-year-old daughter, which they claimed wasn't true. So it's horrible that these signs are popping up regardless. So one source had said that before Ron had passed away, he had gotten into the habit of removing these signs every morning before his daughter would see them. Oh, that is just awful. It's tragic. Don't bring... Don't bring kids into Mm -hmm. this. That's horrible. And I mean, Mary and Ron, like, when Ron was alive, very much said, like, nothing had happened between Gordon and the daughter. Yeah, and even if this person was trying to expose something of happening, you're damaging the kid by letting them see that. Yes, that's That's just just horrible. So this continued on until one day Mary had had enough. February 7th, 1983, Mary decided that she had it. She was going to rip down the signs when she saw them. Mm -hmm. And this was after Ron had passed away. So thankfully, before she ripped one down, she noticed a piece of twine hanging from a box that the poster was attached to. Mary removed the whole contraption, brought it back onto her bus with her to kind of see what it was. Mm -hmm. Well, the sign had been booby-trapped. And had she pulled down the sign in a certain way, the twine would have pulled the trigger and a pistol would have fired at her. So she literally would have been shot. Who has time for that? (laughs) And, like, who who would have even thought of that? Yeah, that is pure evil. Mm Mm-hmm. So the gun was brought to a lab, and it was determined that the person who had set up the booby trap had tried to rub the serial number off of the gun so it couldn't be traced back to who bought it. Oh, wow. Well, the lab was able to reveal the serial number, and it showed that the gun was registered to Paul Freshour, who was Ron's sister's husband. Okay, what is up with these names? I know. But that's, that's awful. So at this point, though, Paul and Ron's sister had actually been separated. So that's kind of weird. Um, Paul, of course, claimed that it couldn't have been him because his gun had been stolen. How convenient. Right. A couple days later, on February 25th, 1983, Paul took a writing test to see if they could link his handwriting to the letters that Mary and Ron had received. Paul had to write the letters as well as repeat them verbally, which isn't how writing is supposed to be done. Like he was told, copy this letter, write just like this letter, which you're not supposed to do. So once done, a search was done of Paul's garage with the cops coming and searching the garage. After that, Paul and Sheriff Radcliffe went down to the courthouse and Paul was arrested and charged with attempted murder. Good. So October 24th, 1983, a couple months later, his trial began for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie with the gun and everything. Mm -hmm. But a handwriting expert had come forward during the trial to say that Paul's handwriting matched and that he was the letter writer. But it was later said that the handwriting analysis was collected incorrectly. Wow. We need to fire everyone on this Mm -hmm. case and hire new people, even though it's been like 35 years. (laughs) 
Because what they said was what I told you where they told him how to write the letter. That's wrong. You're just supposed to say, write this letter. Don't try to copy it how they wrote it. Just write it in your own handwriting. Because that's coercing if you're telling them to write Mm -hmm. it like that. And so if they're writing it in their own handwriting, that's how you're going to see if they have the same, like, handwriting mannerisms. Yeah. I mean, it's not that hard to be like, okay, write these 10 sentences. Mm-hmm. And they'll do it on their own if, if it matches. If it matches, then it matches. Yeah. But if it doesn't, you can't force some Because if you're telling me, like, write just like this, well, I'm going to write just like it. And it's most likely going to be and a match. Like, oh, it matches. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. So Sheriff Ratcliffe confirmed that upon the search of Paul's garage, there had been no materials that had been used in the construction of the booby traps. There was also no ammunition found. What? Paul's fingerprints were not found on the gun, were not found on any of the booby traps, and were not found on any of the letters. Who did this then? Mm. So Mary testified, saying that she had originally believed that Paul had been the original writer after she met with Paul's ex-wife. So Paul's ex-wife, Karen, Mm -hmm. who was Ron's sister had suspicions that he was the writer. So she confessed to Mary after the divorce. Mm-hmm. She had, Which I thought this was interesting. So Karen had moved into a trailer on Mary's property after Ron had passed away. So technically they're still like, I guess, sister-in-laws. And one night confided in Mary that she believed Paul was the letter writer. But I think this accusation is because Paul and her... But so I think why she accused him was because I said Karen and Paul had gotten a divorce mm-hmm. and Paul had won custody of the children and won the house. So she's bitter. Also, another person who was testified who testified was Paul's boss, David Wilson. He testified saying that Paul did not show up for work on the day that Mary was almost killed by the booby trap. He stated that That's in ad- suspicious. Yeah, he stated that in advance, Paul had requested and received a floating holiday that he used on February 7th. Paul claims though that he had an alibi for the day of the booby trap, but he didn't testify. So wow. I I read everywhere, like, this is something that he is going to grow to regret, was that he just didn't testify the fact that he had an alibi on that day. Wow. I wonder why. There had to be a reason. Maybe his lawyer just told him not to. I have no idea. Yeah. So Paul was not charged with writing any of the threatening letters, but they were held as evidence against him, which I thought was interesting, but only 39 of the thousand. And those 39 were the ones that Mary had received. He was sentenced to 7 to 24 years for the attempted murder of Mary, which is kind of weird given there was all this evidence also saying that it wasn't him. So Paul ended up in prison in Lima, Ohio, but he began receiving letters from the writer that were (gasps) determined to keep him in prison. I knew it. I had a feeling. Uh Uh-huh. So the letter he received said, quote, now, when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. No one wants you out. No one. The joke is on you. And he writes this. He goes, ha, semicolon, ha, semicolon. Tell no one of this letter. I saw the paper. Great news. Great. The sheriff loved it. Ha, ha. Do you believe it now? Do you? Another excerpt from a letter said, quote, shame how things work out, but better you than me. The sheriff says you did it, but you know better, don't we? Okay, if I were Paul, I would respond to the letter that said, no one wants you out, and I would be like, well, I want me out, so booyah, like, try to get at me. But he's in jail. I know. (laughs) So others were also still receiving letters while Paul was in jail, though they continued to be postmarked with Columbus, though Paul was in Lima. So there's no way he could have written these letters. Yeah. He was also moved to solitary confinement because of this, because they believed he was writing the letters. 
His cell was swept multiple times. They tried to find like anything that could link him to writing these letters, but there was never anything found that could link him. So he was denied parole in December 1990, but another source said 1988, so still not sure. But due to the letters, though apparently there was no way he could still be sending them when he had been in prison. Leave this man alone, I know. At this point, he took three polygraph tests, all of which he passed. He was denied again in 1993 and was finally paroled in May 1994, which was almost 11 years that he was behind bars. Oh my gosh. So from that day, he continues to maintain his innocence. So after his release and up to his death in 2012, Paul put together a website and a 176-page PDF that claimed his innocence. He stated that Sheriff Radcliffe had covered up Ron's murder, and he stated, quote, I believe that the obscene, threatening, and dangerous letters were concealed because they would interfere with Sheriff Radcliffe becoming the National Sheriff's Association's president. See the date of the letters and the date of his involvement with the National Sheriff's Association. The crime rate in Pickaway County at the time would have eliminated him from this appointment. So he's claiming that the sheriff pretty much covered up this murder of Ron so that his stats would look better. And been like, oh, it was an accident, blah, blah, blah. He's not reliable either. Nope. That's so messed up. So a couple other letters that I found were very interesting. So other letters focused on Dr. Ray Carroll, who was the Pickaway County coroner. So in December 1993, Carol received letters stating that he had been accused of, quote, sexually abusing children in the past. The Columbus Metropolitan Library had an article on this that stated that, quote, the state medical board issues 12 charges, eight of them alleging gross immortality against Dr. Ray Carroll. So the rest included sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent exposure. So these letters showed that this coroner was just a horrible person, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Roger Klein was also the subject of some of these letters. So Klein was Paul's prosecutor. Paul was the guy who they thought wrote the letters. Mm -hmm. So letters stated that he had killed a pregnant school teacher. I couldn't find the name, but the Dark Histories podcast believes that her name was Vicky Coach. So that's what I'm going to go with. The writer threatened Klein and told him that if he didn't admit to not only killing the woman and her unborn child, but also that he was the one who impregnated her, the writer would dig up the grave and mail the bones to the police. Wow. So the rumor was that Klein had gotten a school teacher pregnant, and that was confirmed by a local family. But he was investigated and cleared, so there's nothing more about him. So David Longberry had forcibly, apparently, had forcibly raped an 11-year-old girl in 1999, What I read was that he got hired by some family to work on their farm or whatever and had raped the girl and the parents like walked in on him doing this, which is just horrible. So he went on the run after that and was found years later having hung himself. It was believed that he ran away from all of this in Ohio and ended up in El Paso where he ran to in 1999 and that's where everything happened. Mm -hmm. Martin Yant was a journalist and he had some thoughts on who additional suspects could be. Martin Yant began to investigate this case and believes that there is an additional suspect who would have planted the booby trap. On the day that Mary had found the booby trap, another bus driver stated that many, he stated this many, many years later, but he stated on that day, about 20 minutes before Mary drove by, he had seen a suspicious man standing at the exact spot of the booby trap next to a yellow El Camino. The suspicious man, whose name was not released, had a brother apparently who owned the same type of car the man was seen standing next to. The suspicious man's appearance, though, did not match Paul. 
Paul had dark hair. Because it wasn't Paul. Uh-huh. So Paul had dark hair, and this suspicious man had sandy-colored hair. This was also the time that Paul claimed he had an alibi, so he couldn't have been there if his alibi had held true, but since he never testified, he wasn't able to say that his alibi would have defended him. Yant also believes that there would have been at least three writers of these Circleville letters, like what you've said, where there had to be more than just one. He believes Paul is not one of the writers. He was quoted saying, quote, they, the letters, were being received all over the large area of central Ohio. So a lot of people couldn't understand how Paul could have mailed all of those letters from prison, end quote. Yant believes that the three writers were, one, the son of the superintendent that Mary was having an affair with William, because he obviously would have found out about his dad, been really pissed off about it. That's why he was writing Mary those letters. Mm -hmm. And it would make sense that he would have had a lot of, the first part of those letters would have been someone talking about the affair, because if it was William upset with his dad having the affair, that's all the letters are going to focus on. Mm -hmm. He also believes another writer to be the co-worker of Mary's, David Longberry, who was infatuated with him. Which would not surprise me. Nope. And then Karen, Paul's ex-wife, who was Ron's sister. Um, Yant believes that the mysterious man standing next to the El Camino was Karen's new boyfriend. So a little bit more into his theories. So David Longberry was believed to be, also could have been one of the first writers of the letters. Um, Mary refused his advances and went ahead and started dating Massey, having the affair, whatever. Mm -hmm. So this would make sense why he had also talked about the affair at the beginning of the letters, which, you know, could have been between him or Macy's son. And it also could have been Longberry's way of getting back at Mary for denying him, which is kind of bad. So Karen Freshour, who was Paul's wife, was believed to be the second writer. So after she and Paul... I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) So after her and Paul got a divorce, it was believed that she wrote these letters, put up the signs, and set up the booby trap all to frame Paul. And so it would make sense that she was mad. Like I said, they got the divorce when it was found out that Karen had cheated on Paul, which is why Paul got full custody of the children, got the house, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Martin Yant also stated that Karen was, quote, a very, very angry, manipulative woman who was still planting negative stories about Paul in the early 1990s, end quote. The OG Karen. Right? So she's just, you know, mad that she cheated. And that Paul got everything because he didn't cheat. So she's mad that he's getting all this stuff. So she wants to frame him. And it makes perfect sense if she has access to the gun, access to building this booby trap. So Karen is also connected to that yellow Al Camino that was seen as her new boyfriend at the time matched the description of the man seen. And she had a relative who owned a yellow Al Camino. Many of her letters were typed, which is interesting. While most of the early letters were handwritten. And this is suspicious as Karen had borrowed a typewriter from Paul's sister after the divorce. Wow. And Paul's sister had stated that it was very weird that she had wanted Paul's typewriter. Like, she's like, you guys are divorced. Why would you want the typewriter? That was just something that stuck in um, Mary's head that, like, she would want this random typewriter. That was yeah. her ex-husband's. So Unsolved Mysteries did an episode on this case. And while they were recording it, they received a postcard. It was believed to be from the letter writer. No. Uh-huh. Dude, that's too close <laughs> Mm-hmm. So this letter said, quote, forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you L sickos will pay. The Circleville writer, end quote. So this is the last known letter from the writer. And this episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired on November 11th, 1994. So they got this letter right wow. before they aired these episodes. So though not mentioned in the episode, apparently Paul had admitted to Sheriff Radcliffe that he had actually written 40 to 50 of the Circleville letters. What? But Paul? I I could not find this information anywhere else. I yes. looked and it was for him. I know. And it was only in this one source where I found that information. Could not find it anywhere else. 
the hosts of Drunk History believe that Mary was actually the suspect all along. So Mary, the one who got the letters. She framed herself. So they're saying that the reason she was able to have all these info about all of her neighbors was because she was a bus driver. Yeah. So she's hearing the kids. That's actually a really good point. Mm-hmm. So she's hearing all of her kids talk about all this gossip, so she knows all this gossip. And she, the fact that she was so close to pulling the trigger, mm-hmm. she knew how to not mm-hmm. and how to set that up. And they say she would have stolen Paul's gun as well because, like, you know, they're all friends, they're all family, they could be in each other's houses. She knew about the gun. But, again, I could find no evidence to support this other than what drunk history was believing. Yeah. But, yeah, so those are the Circleville murders. It's still technically an unsolved mystery. They have no idea who That's wrote all the letters. so interesting. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, it's always so, I mean, obviously it's very unfortunate when people get hurt or abused and Mm -hmm. things like that, but it's so interesting to see, like, scandals shake up a small town. Uh Uh-huh. And it was called the Poison Pen Murder because Ron was killed, so there's the murder from it. But yeah, it's just crazy. Do you know if Paul's still alive? I think he is. I I want to, um, Paul, if you're listening, we want to have you on the show. (laughs) We want to interview you. Actually, I'm going to check real quick. Because oh. if he is, I mean, because 85, he, I mean, he's probably pretty old. But, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of um, shows where he talks and, like, is interviewed about what happened because it, it's he was behind bars for 11 years. Wow. I would love to pick his brain mm-hmm. and just ask him about all sorts of things that happened during that time. I just, I can't even. But, I, yeah, I was reading this case and I was like, this is so fascinating. So And, oh, gosh, the frustration he must have felt, mm-hmm. especially if he had, like, a solid alibi. Mm-hmm. False ac- false accusations and being in jail for a crime you didn't commit. I cannot imagine. No. Like, I feel like you could either leave jail being bitter the rest of your life or leave jail and I'd be bitter. make a difference. I know who I am as a human. <laughs> I, I, I think I would be, but there's a show called um, World's Toughest Prisons or something like that. Oh, my God. I love that show. You know, the host of the show was in prison yes. for years for a crime he didn't commit. That's a, that's a really good show. And he did. He chose to, like, kind of expose or show different prisons instead of mm-hmm. just, like, be upset the rest of the Yeah. Year. So I really admire that about him. That is true. But, yeah, it also with whoever this author, the writer of the letters was, it makes you think, were they trying to be, like, the hero in some of this? Because they're exposing, you know, that horrible coroner. They're exposing that guy who impregnated a woman and mm-hmm. maybe potentially killed her. And they expose David who raped a girl. So it's like, is he being, like, a vigilante type of thing where he's, like, trying to show all these horrible people I think he, maybe he started off with good intentions, but when you put yourself at their level, mm-hmm. that makes you just as bad. Yeah. And it's kind of like the thing I was thinking was an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Oh. That sounds so cliche. Mm-hmm. But I think it's true because this guy, if he was trying to expose people, caused a lot of harm. Yeah. Process, made him just as bad as those people. Yeah. But so they just have no idea who this person was. That's so interesting. But yeah. So... Thank you guys so much for listening again to our fifth episode. We're still new at this, so we're still working through making sure we're on all platforms. Um, Please be nice to us. (laughs) We're trying real hard. Um, If you have any recommendations for cases you'd like to hear, any scary stories from your state you want to tell us, please email us at a scary state podcast at gmail.com. 
We also have an Instagram. Um, the name is Scar- a Scary State Podcast. Um, and we're going to post pictures after every episode. And I think it's so interesting to see, like, put a face to all the stories. So you I, can check that out. I like doing that a lot. And you can see stuff and you can kind of understand the case a little bit more, which is always nice. Definitely. Um, we're also in the process, like I've been saying, of getting some more social media. But it's work. It we're getting time. there. It take, yeah, it takes time. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you so much for listening, guys, and remember to stay scary. Stay safe.